Amen. How you guys doing, all right? Yeah? Excellent. Well, uh, it's great to be with you. I'm really glad to be uh, able to spend some time with you in the Word today. We're going to be talking about the most important and most neglected spiritual discipline we have, prayer. The most important and most neglected spiritual discipline we have that we call prayer. How many of you struggle with your prayer life? Yeah, welcome to the crew, all right? Okay, so uh, yeah, at times I find praying something very difficult, something that's necessary, something that's good for me, but often something that is difficult in my life. Uh, There's this really wonderful book written by Don Whitney called Praying the Bible. A few of you guys have read that. Ethan, you read that, right, Spielman? Yeah, man. You read it in a day, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, he picked it up and he was like, I've got to continue on with this. Uh, I'm sure there are a number of others. Uh, I wanted to read to you a little bit from his first chapter because I think it summarizes some of what we face when we are struggling with prayer. But before we get there, let's pray and ask God to show us our need for prayer. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're here, that you're with us. We thank you that your word guides us and leads us into truth. I pray, Father, that you would help us as we approach the topic of prayer, as we approach this passage from John 17. May we learn some principles of ways that we can pray to glorify you, to see a transformed prayer life, and to see your work in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. John Piper said this, if I try to pray for people or events without having the word in front of me, guiding my prayers, then several negative things happen. Do these things happen to you, friends? First is this, is that you tend to be repetitive. Do you tend to be repetitive in your prayer? The other thing is that your mind tends to wander, right? Uh, That's why I call it a spiritual discipline, because it takes discipline to pray. And if you're like me, I've got a little bit of squirrel brain when it comes to praying, right? I can start praying for something, and then I'll be like, oh, I got this appointment at this time, and I'm going to go to this thing, and I've got this going on, and oh, I've got to pick the girls up today. Oh, look, that's really shiny. I like that, right? Squirrel, okay? Um, That happens in my mind in prayer, or maybe you're wandering thinking about the things that you need to take care of with your family or what's coming up next for lunch, whatever it may be. Those two things often happen to us. We either are very repetitive in our prayer or we are wandering in our minds when it comes to prayer. Don Whitney says this. He says, since prayer is talking with God, why don't people pray more? If prayer is talking with God, why don't people pray more? Why don't the people of God enjoy their prayer more? I maintain that people truly born again, genuinely Christian people, often do not pray simply because they do not feel like it. They simply do not feel like it. And the reason that they don't feel like praying is that when they do pray, they tend to say the same old things about the same old things. When you've said the same old things about the same old things about a thousand times, how do you feel about saying them again? Did you dare just to think the B word? Yes, bored. We can talk about, or we can be talking to the most fascinating person in the universe about the most important things in our lives and be bored to death. As a result, a great many Christians conclude that the problem is me. It must be me. 
something's wrong with me. If I get bored and something is important as prayer, then I must be a second-rate Christian. Indeed, why would people become bored when talking with God, especially when talking about that which is most important to them? Is it because we don't love God? Is it because deep down we really care nothing for the people or matters we pray about? No. Rather, if this mind-wandering boredom describes your experience in prayer, Don would argue that if you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, if you are born again, then the problem is not you, it's your method. It's your method. Are you coming to church this morning thinking like you may be a second-rate Christian because you're bored by prayer? Is that you this morning? In John 17, we get to see a picture of how Jesus is praying for the disciples, and we get to learn a way that we can pray, and that's going to be by using the Bible as a guide to influence our prayers. Okay, it's going to be by using the, the Bible as a guide of influencing our prayers. Up to this point in John's gospel, Jesus has just concluded his very final words that he will share with the disciples uh, in teaching instruction in private matters to them in John 16. In that portion of scripture, he told us that there is going to be a time where they're going to have sorrow because he's going to go and he's going to die on the cross. But their sorrow would turn into joy because he would be resurrected from the grave. And while the world may combat them, he has overcome the world so they can have conquering joy and hope in their circumstances because Jesus will make the way for us to be made right with God. John chapter 17 is not an experience where any of the other disciples actually sat down and witnessed the words that we get recorded in that chapter. We have John 17 by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through John in his writing to show us what had happened. Now, in the final moments of Jesus' life, if we look at other Gospels like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we'll see things like Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see that he gets away and prays, right? Now, what does he do in that time? Does anybody remember? In the other Gospels, when Jesus gets away to pray in the final hour in the Garden of Gethsemane, what happens? Don't everybody jump out now, all right? Come on, come on, give it to me. The disciples sleep. Yes, they show their wonderful understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, and they go to sleep, right? No. Yeah, they show some failing, some misunderstanding. He asks them, he gives them an instruction, doesn't he? He says, I'm going to go and pray. You go and pray for an hour, right? He tells them to go and pray for an hour, and Peter, John, and James, at least we see, fall asleep. And in that time that Jesus is praying, Luke's gospel records for us quite an emphatic scene. Does anybody know how Luke describes that final prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane for Jesus? Anguish. Yeah, what happened in his anguish? Yeah, he was sweating drops of blood. He was anxious about what was going to be coming up, if that's the right kind of word, if we can describe it that way. He was anguished by what he was about to face. He understood that the cup was about to come, that he was going to bear the wrath of God. He knew what was coming for him, and he was, he was moved in his spirit. He was troubled by what was coming up. So at least in the other Gospels, we get to see this picture where Jesus gives the disciples instructions to go and pray, and he himself goes away and prays the Lord. But John 17, I think, actually gives us the picture of what he's praying while he's away and by himself with the Father. 
If we remember in Luke's gospel, Luke uh, records, he says that Jesus said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. In John 17, we see that there are f- essentially four sections of how Jesus is, pray, or Jesus is praying for uh, the disciples, for himself, and to God. So here's going to be the framework of how we learn to pray from John 17, from Jesus' high priestly example for us. So four things for you to write down. Number one, write this. Pray that you would know God. If you're looking and trying to learn how to pray, pray to know God. First, pray to know God. Second, pray for unity. Pray for unity. Pray for unity. Third, pray for sanctification. Pray for sanctification. And finally, pray for the world to know the glory of God. Pray for the world to know the glory of God. What Don uh, Whitney would argue in his book, Praying the Bible, is what I'm emphasizing for you this morning. It's looking at the text, seeing how the text is shaped, and then using its shape and structure and its emphasis in order to structure your prayer life. A really great exercise for you to do this week is to look at John 17, to write down those four things, and to then exercise your prayer life day to day. Maybe you just pray first on Monday for knowing God. Maybe Tuesday you're praying that you would have unity with other Christians. Wednesday, so on and so forth, okay? This is what he would argue is a really great method of how we can pray the scripture. So sometimes we're looking to see what, how in the world do we pray, what, what do we pray about? Well, here are the four things we can pray. Pray to know God, to be unified, to grow in sanctification, and make his glory known to the world. So let's look at particularly how Jesus prays to God, starting in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things. He looked up to heaven and said, so he spoke these things, that is John 16. He spoke his final instructions, and he looked up to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Is this the first time that he has declared that the hour is at hand, friends? No. In in John chapter 12 and verse 23, right before his private getaway with the disciples in chapters 13 through 16, Jesus declares to the world that's around them, the disciples and those that are in his presence, he says, the hour has come. He has declared to them that that hour is the hour where he will go to the cross, he'll be crucified, buried, and then resurrected. Okay, so he says, Father, the hour has come Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. So the hour is at hand and the prayer that Jesus lifts up to God first is that God would be glorifying the son. How would the son glorify the, God, the father? He would glorify the father By taking those who have been given to him. Taking those who have been given to him. For what purpose? Notice verse 3. So that he may give eternal life to everyone you've given him. This is eternal life. He defines it this way. That they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. 
Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. So how is God glorified through Jesus? By Jesus giving eternal life. How does Jesus give eternal life? He gives eternal life through his sacrifice. Okay, flip your Bible over to John 3. John 3. Okay? We'll see if anybody needs to look at their passage. I'm probably going to need to because I always ramble up words. John 3, verse 16. Okay? Does anybody know this passage? Give it a shot. How about our truth tracker kids back there, huh? You guys know this passage, John 3, 16? Caleb, friends? Emma, you know it? <laughs> She's like, they do. <laughs> she does. It's okay. I know. It's, it's, it's very... Chase, you want to give it a shot? Go ahead. Ah. Oh. I like your version of a chase. <laughs> now, you're doing really good, buddy, right? So God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Yeah. You know the whole verse? Let's hear it, my man. Can you say it for us? Amen. Good job, buddy. Good job. Good job. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, okay? This was the purpose that God had sent Jesus into the world. He sent Jesus into the world to bring the people that God was going to save into his possession, okay? Into his possession. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus was on a rescue mission to save us. And verse 18 tells us that anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Jesus was sent to rescue sinners by doing the work that God had set for him that was dying in our place for our wrongdoing, being buried and rising from the grave. This is how people come to know God, by looking to Jesus and seeing what he has accomplished for us. Knowing him is not merely just the idea of recognizing what he has done, but placing our faith in him, trusting in him, and repenting of our sin. God gives us life in Jesus by his name, by his word, by his action. J.I. Packer, he says that knowing God involves three different things. If you remember our study from, from knowing God, my friends may remember this from chapter 3. Knowing God involves three things. First, it's a personal matter. It's a personal matter. It's a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with him as he takes knowledge of you. It's a personal matter. It's a personal relationship with God. Knowing God, second, involves personal involvement. It involves our mind, our will, and our feelings. Our mind, our will, and our feeling. So yes, there is emotional things in our relating to God. And there is also the intellectual or the volitional ways that we relate to God. Not only should we have an affection for him, we should have an acknowledgement of him, and that should lead to action for him. Affection, acknowledgement, action for him. It's a personal matter. 
It's a matter of personal involvement. And three, he would say that it's a matter of grace. It is a matter of grace. We do not make friends with God. Guys, I think it's important to note that. We do not make friends with God. God makes friends with us. God makes friends with us. He brings us to know him by making his love known to us, Packer would say. So knowing God is a personal matter with personal involvement and a matter of grace, a matter where God gives to us what we do not deserve. He initiates and he seeks us and he runs after us. So in light of what Jesus is saying here, verse 6, he continues on and says, I have revealed your name to your people. You gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. They kept your word. So they heard the word about God from Jesus. They believed that word. They kept that word. And he says in verse 7, now they know everything that you have given is from given." Yeah, is from you because I have given them the words that you gave me. They received them and have known for certain that I came for you, and they have believed that you have sent me. So there's some sort of knowing relating to believing that's here. Christians are those who hear God's word, respond to God's word, and keep God's word, rejoicing in God's love. Do you know God? Do you know him? This morning as we were walking through some of First Timothy in our education hour, one of the things that we said in that time was that knowing the gospel is not a matter of graduating out of the gospel. Godly leaders are not those that master the gospel in such a way that they're like, I, I know that and I get that and I no longer need it. Paul, in his words to Timothy, said that Christ came to save sinners of whom he was the, former, uh, the foremost, okay? So Paul, after he had planted churches, he had been involved in multiple missions movements, his outlook on life was not that he had come to the gospel and said, I don't need to have Jesus die for me as a sinner anymore. He looked at it and said, I need Jesus more. Growing the gospel isn't about seeing the gospel less, it's about seeing it more as we grow. Right? Maturity in life is not less of our need, but more of our need in Jesus. How should we pray? First, brothers and sisters, pray that you would know God. Pray that you would know him. Pray that if you're here today and you have not heard the gospel, we're praying for you right now that you would hear this good news. Jesus has died for you, my friend. He was buried and resurrected for your sin so that you could relate to God. How do you do that? Acknowledging your sin, repenting, asking God for forgiveness, and trusting in Jesus alone to save you and make you right with him. Pray that you would know God. If you've known that gospel reality for a number of days, weeks, months, years, decades, pray that God would never let you get to a place where you got over the gospel. Pray that you would know him. Pray that you would know his word. In verse 9, Jesus shifts his prayer from how he emphasizes his relating to God to then focusing in on the disciples. 
And within this section, we see from verses 9 to 19, two different ways that Jesus prays for the disciples. He prays for their unity, and he prays for their sanctification. So first, let's notice how we can learn from Jesus to pray for unity. Verse 9, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Okay. I know this may be like simple, but it's right there in the text, and we need to acknowledge it. Jesus is not praying for everyone here. He is praying for those that follow him. He's praying for those that follow him. So the, the shape of his focus in his glorification is not on everyone, but on those that particularly believe in him. Okay, that's what the text says. Right. Continuing on, verse 10, everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that you may be, they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name, that you have given me, I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Jesus prays for their unity. Notice what he says, that they may be one as we are one. Who is the we? Definitely Jesus and the Father, right? We at least see that much. But I think there's actually a Trinitarian focus that's here. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. As the Trinity... The three persons, the one Godhead, as they relate and have communion together, they are unified. They are solid. They are together. They are committed to the same work, the same mission in different capacities. And Jesus prays for the disciples that they would be unified like the Trinity is unified. But notice the, the matter of their unity here. The matter of their unity is based upon not only that they relate like the Godhead, but that they also relate to the world. That they would be protected. That they would look out for one another. They would guard each other as they pray for unity together. We should pray for the unity of those that are walking with God by praying for protection. Praying for things like the spiritual well-being of other Christians. Guys, do you care about the spiritual well-being of those that are here with you this morning. Have you thought to yourself, like, man, how is how's Caleb doing? Hey, welcome home, brother. Glad that you're back from Texas. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you had a big steak for me. Maybe. Do you have any steak? No steak in Texas? Man, you gotta go back. You gotta go back now. <laughs> Apparently they do it, they do it different down there. <laughs> so um But man, yeah, I need to care about how Caleb is walking with Jesus. I need to care not only about how I'm walking with Jesus, how he's walking with Jesus, but how we are walking with Jesus. Do you have spiritual interest in the other Christians that gather with you Sunday to Sunday? Pray for their unity. Pray for their protection. Pray for their well-being. Not only spiritually, this may actually involve actually praying for them physically. Think of the persecuted church. A number of weeks ago, we spent time in our small groups praying for the top 10 persecuted areas in the world for Christians. We prayed for nations like Sudan, Afghanistan, Pakistan. We we prayed for a number of locations, praying particularly that those Christians would be safe. 
The world, according to John 15, wants to persecute Christians in such a way that in chapter 16, it tells us that those that are part of the synagogue may even kill those that profess Christ, thinking that they're doing something good for God. We need to have a concern for the well-being of other Christians. So that's a matter of how we can pray for unity, how we can pray to be united in the cause and our belief together with Christ. But notice also that he says in the text, why should they, why does he want God to protect them? So that the scripture may be fulfilled, yes, but that they may have joy. That they may have joy. That they would have joy in me. This is something that Jesus has now, within the last four chapters, repeated at least three times. John 15, verses 1 through 17. Caleb preached on this. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, so that your joy may become complete. John 16. Your sorrow is coming, but your sorrow will turn to what? To joy. In what? In the person and work of Christ. Now John 17, as Jesus is praying for these disciples, Father, unite them that their joy may be complete. How is it complete? How do we have joy together? In the person and work of Christ. Friends, pray for the joy of Christians. Where is your joy? It needs to be in the Lord. Your joy isn't in how much money you make. Your joy cannot be in how often your kids come by. Your joy cannot be in how many times you're out with your friends every week. All of those things are going to fade away. Your joy, your contentment, your happiness, your everything needs to be in the person and work of Jesus. Pray that we would have unity by reminding ourselves of the joy that is in Christ and in knowing him and being known by him. Pray for unity and joy. You notice this too, when a church is unified, it's joyful. It's joyful, isn't it? Man, we have such a sweet fellowship of, of believers right now. Our membership, you think of our last members meeting, okay guys? When we voted Lauren in as our, our, uh, our church clerk, right? We laughed more than we did anything else together. We had joy together. Yeah, now like, yes, because we also know how to be humorous, indeed. But we enjoy each other's company. It's not a burden for us to gather together to do business together for God's glory. Have you been in a church where there is no joy? Have you had that experience yet? Yeah, that's not so fun, right? You, you dread things like members' meetings. You dread even at times getting up to go to church, to be with other people, because you're like, oh, how is this person going to treat me today? Is the pastor, is he going to preach for 45 minutes again? 50 minutes? 55 minutes? Who is this joker, right? Maybe you've prayed that about me. <laughs> Certainly, right? <laughs> Maybe I've prayed that about myself. <laughs> when you're in a, cho or a church where, where there is not the presence of joy, being part of that church feels like more work than it does, like, benefit. And it's not that we should go to church just to be benefited by what the church can bring to us, right? That's, not a, that's a programmatic kind of vision. What can the church do for me? Coming to church, being part of the family of God is about worshiping God because he's worthy. Right? 
we should pray for unity by joy, having joy in Christ. And just a final note on praying for unity, guys. I really want to emphasize this. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. Y'all don't need to be like me. Nor do you need to be like Caleb or Joe. Or like the person you may look up to at church. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses the image of a body to represent the church, right? The human body, right? We, we know this passage, right? If the nose were to say to the toes, you smell, get out of here, right? You, we don't need you. That's not true. Have you ever had a broken toe? Yeah, I've been there. That's not fun, right? It hurts to walk. <laughs> we need each other. If we were to think, like, I'm more important because I'm a mouth and less important because what does an armpit do <laughs> other than stink? There seems to be a pattern. I'm really sorry about the development of this. <laughs> Each part has its function. And when one part isn't working, the whole is bothered. Okay? It's like even driving a car. If you've got one tire that's not doing so well, you are going to feel it every single thing on the road. You're going to be pulling in this direction, trying to turn your car. It's going to be a workout just trying to drive somewhere, right? Every part is for the whole. Uniformity, does, our unity is not equal uniformity. It actually looks like diversity. Diversity but commitment in what's most important. Membership of the church. When we practice church membership, like James and Maggie coming up, and being in front of us, our statement of faith, our statement of faith is really important, and it's what we would say are like the most important things that we see of truth in the Bible, but it's not everything we see in the Bible. So there can be differences. There can be differences of opinion, differences of conviction on a number of things where you can belong, yet keep what mo what's most important in view. What's most important? Jesus the gospel, that we would have joy in who? Joy in Jesus. Pray for unity, uh, praying that we would develop a joy that's in Christ, and that we would enjoy those that belong to Christ, even when we're different. I said to somebody recently, um, Gene and Joan aren't here, but I love picking on Gene and Joan, and Gene's not here, so I get a, a great opportunity to pick on him without him being here. Gene and Joan and, uh, and Rachel and I, we're friends. And if you were to, like, match us up on paper, take, like, an 80-something who lives in the middle of the woods in a log cabin who just says what he thinks, <laughs> right? And then you were going to put that up with somebody who's a 30-something who still lives in the middle of the woods, um, but look at our experiences of life. There's no good reason just by our experiences that Gene and I should get along. Yet I, I consider Gene such a good friend to me because he believes in Jesus. The way that that brother loves God's word, the way that he encourages me and he just says, keep going, keep preaching, keep relying on him. That friendship means so much to me, and words that I can never fathom. And 
week to week, I begin to grieve thinking about preparing for his funeral. I can't, I can't put it in my mind. It's going to cause me great suffering. But the unity, the joy that we have together is not through our experiences or our circumstances, but because we, we're united in Jesus. So he can come in with his Jesus saves belt buckle on. <laughs> he could crash the parking lot, and I would want to get out and just embrace him. Because every time he comes through the door, every time I see his face, it brings me joy because Jesus has saved him. That's what unity and joy looks like together. Pray to know God. Pray for unity. Pray for your sanctification. Verse 14, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Pray for sanctification. What is sanctification? When we are saved, we are made righteous with Jesus. Our righteous standing with Jesus is an alien righteousness, one that is credited to us that's perfect righteousness, imputed to us, given to us, a righteousness that no one can take away from us. And that justification, that right standing with God is really important, but the process of, of our lives is while we are in right standing with God from here to now or to when we go to be with God in eternity, that is the process of sanctification, Sanctification is an already and a not yet. We are sanctified and being sanctified. We have right standing with God, and what we will become in God is not fully pictured yet. Sanctification's goal is becoming more like Jesus. Becoming more like Jesus. How do we become more like Jesus? By devoting ourselves to the Word. Devoting ourselves to the Word. Something that I'm reminded of every May, I go to Charles Simeon Trust, that's next week, that's why Dan's preaching, <laughs> right? We're both going to be at Simeon Trust, and we said, we have to like, prepare three texts for small group, and we have to prepare a sermon for that week, let's help each other out here, right? We, we made a great arrangement, and one of the things I'm reminded of when I come to Simeon Trust every year is that doing word work, preaching the word of God isn't just a matter of being devoted to the word, but being devoted to the word in prayer. The first thing they say in sermon preparation through the Charles Simeon Trust is this, that if you haven't prayed, you haven't done it. If you haven't prayed, you haven't done it. Go back and prepare. Go back and prepare. You need to pray. Why? Because preaching is a reliance on God. It's a reliance on God. It's sanctification. As we come to our Bible reading, brothers and sisters, pray before you read your Bible. Pray that God, through the Spirit, would open your eyes to the Word and that the Word would transform you. Don't just read. Pray as you read. I have given them your Word. God means to grow us in Christ by His Word. How can we pray for those that are around us for their sanctification? Pray that we would love, depend on, and consistently be in the Bible. 
Pray that we would love, depend on, and consistently be in the Bible. The world hated them because they are not of the world. God means to grow us in Christ through our sanctification by way of opposition. By way of opposition. Pray that God would encourage you as you face opposition for your faith rather than growing in timidity. Pray for encouragement and boldness and not timidity, a fearfulness or a a shriveling away from opposition. Pray to embrace opposition. Jesus says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Brothers and sisters, God means to grow us in Christ by using us where we are for his purposes. People like to say that the world has gone to hell in a hay basket. They're probably right. Does that mean that you just give up on where you are? Have you ever just been totally miserable because you live in Connecticut? Yeah. I am totally miserable every July when I get my taxes. I'm totally miserable when I look, turn on the news, and I see what people are celebrating. Maybe you have been miserable by thinking of where you are, wanting to go somewhere else. Maybe you're miserable in your job. Maybe you're in a miserable relationship. Maybe fill in the blank. I want to make this argument that you're right here right now because God has you right here right now for his purposes. Now, it seems like as we look at the world, it's going to take an act of God and a lot of time for things to change. It's easy to be pessimistic about that, isn't it? It's like, what influence am I going to make? What influence am I going to make? Brothers and sisters, let the history of this church be a reminder to you of how God uses the gospel in a community. Hebron Church of Hope has been here since 1716. That is 308 years? Am I doing good math there? Spielman, am I doing good math? 308? 307? 307. I was thinking 1715. Pretty close. Good within a year. Nice. 307 years. The government's changed. The schools have changed. The people in this town have changed. This sure is not a rural farming community anymore. But you know what's stayed consistent? The mantle of the gospel through this local church. I love when people in town see me and they're like, you're 31 and you're all about this Jesus. I have been here my whole life. Good luck. You know what comes to my mind? The gospel has been here since 1716. And it's going to be here after me. And I'm going to do everything I can, as long as I can, while I'm here, to make sure that it stays in the mantle that's right here. Lord willing. Now, if somebody wants to remove me, 
I pray that the next guy that comes in here is a gospel guy that keeps at it. Has the world gone to hell on a hay basket? Maybe. But this is where God has me, and he has you. And rather than looking at it as a lost cause, I'm going to look at it as a mission field where God's in charge, and he will be gloried if we're faithful. Do I have hope for Hebron? Yeah. My hope isn't necessarily in Hebron. My hope is in the Lord. I love Jesus' last words to the disciples in John 16. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. You know who gets the last word? God gets the last word. Friend, rather than looking to escape this place, would I encourage you to devote your life in every way that you can to pursuing God and being faithful to the gospel. And would you please know that my prayer is that God would keep all of you in this room, in this place, as long as he can for stability in the gospel and faithfulness of the gospel. I love you guys, and I'm glad you're here. And I hope you stay for a long time. And if you go, I pray that you go to pursue the gospel. And you have my blessing. I want nothing more than for you to serve God and glorify him, to know him, make him known. And while the world looks dark, I'm going to hang in. I'm going to hang in because at the end of the day, the world doesn't win. Jesus wins. Jesus wins, and he has won. So I may not get to see the transformation I hope to see in my lifetime, but... God will have his way. So I'm going to trust in that. Would you trust in that too? Pray for contentment. Pray for your neighborhood. A lot of you don't live here in Hebron. I don't even live in Hebron. I live in Lebanon. I pray for my neighborhood, which includes like half of my wife's family. <laughs> pray for your neighborhood. Would you think right now about the people that are around you in your neighborhood? Would you think about their spiritual state? Do they know God? Are they living for him? Are they glorifying him for his purposes? Would you commit to praying for them this week? God's placed you there to use you to share his good news and to help them to understand the gospel truth. Pray for faithfulness and boldness. Because ultimately, we learn from Jesus that we should pray that the world would know the glory of God. Verse 20, I pray not only for these, but for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in me, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them gl the glory that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be completely made one. And the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have made known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known 
so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Pray for the world to know the glory of God. I pray for these, but not also these, but those who will believe in me through their word. There's Jesus praying for the disciples and praying for those that would come to know God by the disciples' testimony. You know what that tells us, friends? Evangelism isn't an option for us. It's a command. Evangelism is a command. We exist to make disciples who glorify God. We exist to tell others of the good news. When was the last time you shared the gospel? When was the last time you shared the gospel with an unbeliever? Maybe it's been a little while. Maybe it's been a little dusty. Maybe you're like a little discouraged thinking about that. Friend, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged, but do be motivated. Be motivated. Share the gospel. God has placed us in an amazing context to be able to to share the gospel. There are people around us, people immediately around us that need the gospel. Write them down. Pray for them this week. Pray for them this week. Jesus prays that we would be united to display the Trinitarian unity to the world. I am with you. You are with me. I have sent them that they may be one as we are one. The unity of the Godhead is displayed through those that believe Jesus. We have unity together. For those that believe in the gospel, there's a unity that the world is meant to see. Now, yes, churches don't get along, right? Somebody always asks me, like, why are there multiple denominations? Isn't that a bad thing? No, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. I think Pentecostals should be Pentecostals. And I think Baptists should be grumpy Baptists. And I enjoy being a grumpy Baptist. <laughs> Not just grumpy, but a joyful grumpy Baptist. Right? Have you guys seen the reel? You, you, hopefully you've seen this reel. Where it shows like it's this guy, he's got this very stoic look. He almost like looks like he's not happy. And it, the, the, like, the highlight of it says, Baptist in worship. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> he's just like got this grim face. He's like very serious, very stoic. And then it shows like Pentecostals in worship, and it's just utter chaos and like glitter explosions and everything, right? It's, it's funny when you think about it, but there are differences, and those differences exist for good reasons, for good reasons. Now, were there like denominational differences that led to maybe some not great reasons? Yeah, sure. But just because there's differences doesn't mean that they're, those are bad things. I think we need to like buck the trend of saying that denominations are bad. I think that that's not true, not consistent. Presbyterians should be Presbyterians. Baptists should be Baptists. Catholics should be Catholics. Mormons should be Mormons. The last two, I pray, to come to know the gospel, but (laughs) they should be those things. The the world looks at the church and is either going to see division or unity. I love my Presbyterian brothers, even if they want to, like, battle me in baptism at times. I like, there are some Pentecostals I enjoy. I enjoy Bob Coughlin. I enjoy him. He always is, like, screaming in worship. That, that's a little, <laughs> if you've seen this, Ethan, where, like, Bob will be in a song, and all of a sudden, like, he'll just be like, yes, Lord, right? And he screams it out mid-song. It always startles me, right? <laughs> but I love Bob because he loves Jesus, and I know that he's doing that for, because of his 
of his response to Jesus. We should pray for unity so that the world may see our unity that stands in the gospel alone. How can we pray? We pray to know God. We pray for unity, pray for sanctification, and pray that through the church the world would know. The world would know and world would see. Did you come today thinking that you were a second-class citizen because you're bored in prayer? Did you come maybe thinking, I struggle with prayer and I don't really know how to pray? John 17 gives us a picture of what it looks like to pray. Pray to know God, pray for unity, pray for sanctification, and that the world would know the gospel and the power of God through the church. Let's pray now. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus has come so that we may know you, that we may be united in his death, burial, resurrection by our repentance and faith. Pray, Father, that you would help us to glorify you as we seek to grow in Christ. And may our love for one another display to the world the power and hope that belongs to us in Christ alone. Amen. Amen. Well, today, friends, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. If this is your first time being with us, there's just a few instructions I want to give to you before we uh, observe the supper today. The Lord's Supper is for those that are Christians. If you are someone who has placed your faith in Jesus, you've repented of your sin, you are welcome to come and worship with us as we remember Jesus through the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper is not only for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, it's also for those who have been baptized. Baptism is the initiating sign of a relationship with Jesus. It's where people are taken in water, they're dunked under the water, signifying their death to sin, and raised out of the water to signify new life in him. So if you're a Christian and you've been baptized, we invite you to the table. We also believe that Christians should, as best as possible, commit to other Christians and following Jesus together for his glory. So while we may not require church membership in order for you to see the Lord's Supper or observe the Lord's Supper or take it with us, we do encourage you to think about pursuing church membership so that you can walk out your gospel commitment with God and with other people. So if you can say that I qualify in all of those things, you're a Christian who's been baptized, who is pursuing the Lord with other Christians, you are welcome to come to the table this morning. If you are not, and you can't say those things with a clear conscience, we're going to ask you to not observe the Lord's Supper.